Welcome to the Political Economy Forum podcast. I'm your host, Morgan Wack. On today's episode, I'll be hosting a discussion with Dr. Mark Blythe, who's a professor of international economics at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. That's lovely to be with you. My God, you actually talk as fast as I do. I think I think we're going to have to slow down the whole thing for people to listen to this, but I, I, let's go. It'll be I, a quick recording. I'm saving people time and they don't have to put it on 1.5 speed. You know, just get right to the point. Just exactly. Go straight to it. Uh, today, we'll be focusing our discussion on your most recent book, Angrynomics, which is uh, with co-author Eric Lonergan hosting a set of platonic dialogues on the causes, merits, and consequences of contemporary populism. Let's start off with your depiction of recent macroeconomic history. Can you walk us through the computer crash analogy you used to describe capitalism? Yeah, sure. So let me give everybody a little bit of background on the sure. book, right? So you just popped it in there. It's a platonic dialogue, <laughs> right? So, so let me explain what happened. Yeah. Right? So years ago, when I was doing the research for the book before this, which was Austerity, the History of a Dangerous Idea, I wanted to go talk to bond market vigilantes. You might remember there was this idea that like, if you have a deficit, these things called bond market vigilantes will come out and they'll torch your currency and you'll default and you'll all die of debt, right? That was the narrative that was out there. And I thought, really? Because I knew people who worked in financial markets and and even bond traders. And what they really cared about was, you know, having long-term investments that were sustainable. So, you know, if you were had a portfolio entirely composed of Argentine and Colombian bonds, right, then there's a bit of risk built into that, right? You might want to offset that by buying some German stuff, right? So anyway, I went off and I started talking to these folks and found out they weren't really vigilantes at all and what they were really concerned with was different stuff. And that's when I met Eric. And um, Eric and I then sort of hit it off and decided that as the world got crazier and crazier around 2014, 2015, 2016, I wrote a piece called Global Trumpism and Foreign Affairs that sort of summed up a lot was going on at that point in time, that we really should write something. And it wasn't just about populism. It was about sort of, you know, the whole sort of way that we think about the political economy and and it's encapsulated in one phrase on average the world's never been richer okay well who lives on an average right the one thing that we know about the past 40 years it has generated an incredible skewness an incredible kurtosis in the distribution so the notion is sort of like well most people are in the middle and they're doing fine that's just total bullshit right so if that's if you think that that's the case and in fact it's not then obviously your policy error is massive right and it seemed to us that was a lot of what was going on with it So we got together in London and we didn't want to sit down and do the sort of usual academic thing of you write about, I'll write about, you write about, because his schedule in particular, forget about it. So we, we sent each other readings on stuff that we wanted to talk about. Tech, I'll get back to that in a minute. Robotics, AI, aging, climate change, populism. And we read it all and we started having a series of conversations, which we recorded through a couple of iPhones. And that became the dialogic structure of the book. But also by doing it that way, we discovered in our conversations, because they were completely unstructured, they were just based upon a stack of reading for that day, that we really were front loading the fact that everyone's so angry and pissed off, right? And that sort of made us stop for a bit and think about this and go, you know, why is anger so central to this in this particular moment? So then Eric went off and did a whole bunch of reading. I also did a bit, but he really took the front running on this, on anger, on everything from philosophy to neuroscience. And that became sort of the frame of the book. Now, we'll get back to that if you want to, but all of that by prelude is then how do you get to the middle of the book? Because we set it up as anger, which is essentially public anger, private anger. Um, and then we have to tie this to sort of political economy. And we do have macro-angrynomics and, and micro-angrynomics. So how do you explain, let's say, 100 years of capitalist evolution in a book for non-specialists in about 40 pages? That's because I started going to tech conferences. And the reason I started going to tech conferences is because I wanted to figure out how much of the stuff that these guys are hawking was just complete nonsense, right? And in the book, we talk about this, like basically two years after the start of the financial crisis, the, the, the quality press, the financial press across the world was filled with article after article about how by this point, there would be no jobs left in the world. We would all have been replaced by robots, right? So you've just thrown a whole bunch of people out of work 
after a long period of, of wage stagnation and increasing inequality, and now you're telling them we're all going to be replaced by robots, right? No wonder people are pissed off. So um, I started going to tech conferences, and in order to get into these things, you need to talk at them, gains in trade. So it turns out tech people know sod all, sod all about the economy. So they wanted to know some of the stuff that I did. So I needed to develop a framework where you could explain big macroeconomic changes to people who'd never really thought about these things. And that is now when we finally get to answer your question. Because if I just started explaining this, it wouldn't have made no sense, right? So this is it. So basically, the analogy I was using to explain um, macroeconomic booms, slumps, and crashes to a bunch of techies was the following. So imagine that capitalism is a computer. It has hardware. And if you look around the world, think comparative capitalisms, variety of capitalism, then you'll find that there are the similar sort of bits of hardware, but their configuration is different. So Sweden and Denmark are configured different from Italy and Greece, right? The United States and, and England are more alike than different in terms of the way their labor markets put together, but they're wholly different from France and Spain. So everybody has a labor market, but it's different and it's configured differently. America has huge capital markets. Germany has very small ones. Half their firms don't lift on bourses. The whole point of a stock exchange in the US is to do an IPO. It's not capital raising, et cetera, et cetera. So you say that and say, there's your hardware. It's slightly different in different places. Now, at any given point in time, there's a dominant mode of software that governs that hardware. And that's the, the, the OS that makes the thing run. It's a set of economic ideas. And what happens over time is that essentially you get incompatibilities in the software as basically the busing system is asked to address more and more things. And as it becomes more and more overtaxed, these errors crop up. And if you don't correct the errors in time, they accumulate and then you get a system crash. So with that as an analogy, which oddly enough, some people have taken and started to run with because they think it's more than an analogy, which is fine. Um, you can basically tell the following story. So what was capitalism 1.0? It was the gold standard period from 1870 through World War One. What was the hardware? The hardware was basically open markets and interconnected global and local markets. Um, a monetary system based upon inflation and deflation uh, through the trade balance primarily and also through financial arbitrage that determined the level of prices and wages. Unemployment was the control variable in the system, along with inflation and deflation. And ultimately, the set of ideas that governed that was sound money doctrines, lazy fare, and classical economics. What was the bug in the system? Carl Poyani described it perfectly. Labor is not a commodity. And if you treat it as a commodity, particularly with secular downward movements in the nominal real wage, they will get pissed off and angry. And in order to obviate that, then you will try and do some kind of move to stabilize the system, which is variously nationalism and imperialism and social imperialism. All of those tensions build towards a system crash, which is World War One. The attempt to put that back together again in, world, uh, in, in the interwar period uh, fails, primarily because the underlying causal mechanisms, the way the hardware is configured has changed. It's become much more national and isolated. The attempt to put, if you will, the software pipes back together fail in the 1920s. And the attempt to do so actually makes things worse. You end up with the Great Depression, fascism, and then up to World War II. And then we I run through that through version 2.0 is the Keynesian order. Version 3.0 is the neoliberal order. And the sort of the punchline on the whole thing is the neoliberal order doesn't get a system reset. Right. So gold standard gets a huge system reset in 45 to basically 54, which is the rebuilding, building the Keynesian architecture that crashes and burns in the 70s and gets a rebuild with independent central banks and monetary dominance and neoclassical economics in the 80s into the 90s. But the crash in 2008, basically, we do a software patch. None of the hardware changes and all of the bugs are still in the system and the bugs are inequality, leverage, fragility and precariety of labor market experiences. So there we go. So that, I mean, that probably does a better job summing up macroeconomic theory than some textbooks for sure, which is what I enjoyed about your book. It's very concise and it gets to the point. And it is, you know, for a broader audience that might not have an understanding of, of economic history or of kind of the current uh, political moment. So perhaps you can talk a bit more. I don't know, if, would you rather talk about what differentiates Capitalism 4.0 first. I know you just discussed it a little bit. Maybe you can dig in more. Or would you rather talk about kind of the difference between public and private rage? 
or anger. So. I know. Where do you want to go with it? I mean, the thing about 4.0, I mean, 4.0 is, is, is kind of, well, let's do 4.0 first because okay. I've spoken enough about anger. Um, I'm tired talking about anger. <laughs> um, so 4.0 is kind of where we are now. And oddly enough, I'm writing a paper today. I'm, you know, obviously, it's not just today I've been writing a paper. And it's about the fiscal rules in Europe. And there's this whole new debate about basically the Maastricht criteria and the rules that have spawned. So basically, 60% debt to GDP, 3% deficit, inflation rate is the average of the two lowest in the system. And how basically that hasn't worked almost ever. And particularly since the crisis, it's just become a millstone. And if you constantly try and just squeeze your budget to meet these arbitrary targets, you end up destroying public investment, which is why basically Europe is massively behind in the digital transformation. And for all of the talk of green investment, they're really not doing very much. So everyone from the European Commission down says, yeah, we probably need to rethink these rules. And a lot of what's going on is people have said, well, it's COVID, right? So COVID has shown us that governments can actually spend money and like fiscal policy is back and we're going to do the Bidenomics, woohoo, right? All that. And the point I'm making is kind of a bit like the sort of, you know, 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, right? Essentially 3.0 had another 10 to 12 years because of the reboot given by central banks, but it's over. It's done. And, and, and sort of the big claim in a sense would be the kind of the basic causal mechanisms that caused us to build 3.0, which was the kind of um, the labor markets and product markets and sort of nationalized economies of the 60s and 70s that became inflation generators. We still have that as the model we're fighting against. If you think about why is the master criteria there? They're there to stop spillovers in fiscal policy and deficits raising interest rates for other people because that's going to raise their interest rates. That's an idea that would be based in, would be factual if you lived in that old inflationary world, right? Um, why else are they there? They're there to stop uh, basically the public sector being profligate and spending too much, right? Because risk comes from the public sector. Well, what about 2008? It all came from the private sector, right? So the world has moved on in such a way that those rules are obviated and we need to rethink them. And I think what's happening now is we're beginning to see the emergence of something that looks like 4.0. Um, it's not entirely clear what that is. And also, again, this is where the hardware matters. If you think about it, what the EU is, is a huge hardware modification, right? It's pretty serious when you give up your printing press, right? And there's very good reasons for why they did this at the time. I mean, if you're Belgium back in the 1990s, you have monetary autonomy because you have, you know, you know, central bank bullshit, right? And in open capitals era, basically with no capital controls, global interest rates are deciding your local monetary policy. In extremists, you can jack it up and cause a recession. But if you push it down, you might get capital flight. Right. So they decided quite rationally, you know what, this isn't really worth it. It'd be better if we could get rid of the volatility on the export side and the import side. Why don't we just join in one big currency and solve one problem while giving up very little? And if the world was still that inflationary 80s world, that makes sense. Right. But it's not clear that we're in that world anymore. In fact, we're not. So do those rules, do those policies, do those sort of architectures really make sense now? And I think we're just beginning to see sort of the, this kind of intuate recognition of like, hey, maybe there isn't a vertical narrow. Maybe in fact, it's been horizontal for a while. Maybe you can have a pretty much constant low inflation rate with huge swings on unemployment over a long period of time. And if all of that is true, how should we rethink that? And I think we're just at the beginning of doing that. Yeah, I think that's uh, an excellent summary of, from the political economy side, from the perspective of the macroeconomists. And you also dig into the perspective of just ordinary people. And you've talked about this before. Nobody lives on the average. This is where the angry's yeah. or the anger is actually coming from. And so perhaps uh, one quote that I took from, from the book was that you said, the disconnect between our experience of the world and the model used to explain it has come to a head. And so this gets at just mm. what you're talking about now, right? And so perhaps maybe you can dig into why it is, why has our experience with what we, you know, not everybody, obviously, but most people, how they view day-to-day -day life and how they view the economy, why does it have such a big disconnect from what we actually see? So I'll give you an example of this. So if you spend your time thinking about inflation and you basically get into how it's calculated, you realize quite early on that in a modern world, in a modern service economy, where 80% of the economy services, where new products that have never been seen before come in at any moment in time and displace old ones. It's very hard to do a kind of like chained or hedonic index to basically like, you know, figure out when Instagram shows up, what does that do to prices? Like really, who knows, right? So 
and 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 you know, do you consume Instagram in the same way you consume bread, right? I mean, you know, so if the price of bread goes up, we know the price of Instagram. What does that actually mean, right? So there's huge complexities in this now that there didn't there didn't used to be, and also the inflation basket of of different people, uh, the inflation basket is different for different people. So there's the ones that central banks and treasuries measure, right? But then there's yours. So let's take yours, right? You're a millennial. The biggest pain in the ass is housing, right? And and why has this happened? It's happened because there's house price inflation. That, no, there isn't. Inflation is a general rise in the increase of all prices, right? It's the general price level. Everything's going up. And it's not true that everything's gone up, right? Go to Walmart. There's tons of cheap shit, right? What's happened is that the capital labor split has been such that most of the profits of the past 30 years have gone to capital, right? Which is 5 to 10% of the population. Wage stagnation has affected pretty much everybody up to the 80th percentile in some degree or others. And a very simple statistic is this. For the United States, half the country lives on $20 a day or less. So here's the disconnect, right? I'm meant to work hard and send my kids to Brown University, which costs, including room and board, 80 grand a year. Right now, even with financial aid and all the rest of it, that is just absolutely daunting. But it's it's kind of mind-boggling if I'm earning twenty bucks an hour. Like, how is it even conceptually possible that people can do this? Right, that's the beginnings of that disconnect. One of the reasons that you have such a nightmare with housing is we effectively stopped building public housing in the nineteen eighties, and because of that, what happened with privatization of assets, etc., is that the top ten percent turned it into an asset class and bid its price up to ridiculous levels. So that, like a two-bedroom condo anywhere in a growth city on the coast, is now seven hundred and fifty thousand to one point five million dollars. That's insane. That's not an inflation. That has taken a limited supply and bidding up the price because you turned it into an asset class. What's happening now is why are rents going through the roof when we're in the middle of a pandemic? Because private equity funds have got all this money lying around, literally $2 trillion, and they're just buying up housing because it's an asset class. right? So for you, a huge component of your, infl of your inflation experience is housing plus student debt, which is your education costs. Uh, and then, you know, but working out that way. Now, I'm, I'm what, probably 30 years older than you, right? So my housing costs are reasonably fine uh, relative to my income because it's higher. My food costs are nothing in comparison to my income. And for you, they would actually be a big thing. So the point of going through all this is to say that everybody's experience of this is different. And moreover, it's becoming more different over time, which is why when you say to people, the inflation rate is more or less 2% for the past 10 years, people email me and quite reasonably and go, I've been keeping my receipts for five years. Shit's going up. Don't tell me there isn't an inflation, right? And I totally understand that, right? But if you strip out food and if you step out fuel and you basically look at the movement of about 500 core prices, it's really freaking low. Right. So what does that tell us? It tells us that basically, depending on where you are generationally and where you are in the income distribution, the life that you experience in this country is radically different from someone else in another part. We're not experiencing the same thing. And that's where that disconnect comes in. There was a really good piece by Sarah O'Connor, who is not the person in the Terminator movies. Um, she's a, a journalist at the Financial Times a few months back about the difference between the way economists think about how the economy is working and you know and, and what it means and the way that ordinary people experience it and we should pay a lot more attention to how ordinary ordinary people experience it similarly danny blanchflower who's got this great book called not working about the labor market has this phrase he calls the economics of walking around right just go around and talk to people and you'll find it sort of what you think is going on in terms of the numbers may be true in the aggregate but in terms of the personal experience it's not and why does that matter it matters for politics it matters because, you know, this is the, the, the greatest example of the tone deafness of this was the Clinton campaign in 2016 running around the Midwest, right? Countries that have been on economic, counties that have been in economic decline for 25 years and saying, we're back, we're at full employment, the economy is doing great. And it's like the, the walls are crumbling, like the local joblessness is much higher. Kids have all moved because there's no opportunities. The population's aging and they feel that they've been completely screwed and lied to by politicians. And that's the disconnect in the experience. What, what Hillary Clinton was doing was talking about the average and the average had nothing to do with the experience on a local level. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to argue with that. Like you said, that's the experience of, of a lot of people in, in my generation and in, in some older generations, if they are in the wrong part of the United States in particular, then you're you're stuck in the same uh, sort of ruts and economic downturns. Um, so 
the politics of this that you spoke of, this is kind of where populism comes in and maybe you, you have kind of a more complicated definition of populism and I think it ties directly to these grievances. But I'd just be curious how you integrate it with kind of the dominant academic narratives of the cultural and the economic grievances that are used to discuss populism kind of in, in sure. academia. I, yeah. It's, you know, to me, it's the same thing. It's just a question of what you think the ultimate drivers are, right? I mean, you know, I, we said this in the book, and, and I think it still holds true. The problem with the cultural argument is you can't explain a cultural change by reference to a cultural change, right? You, you can't explain a rise in the number of racists by virtue of a rise in the absolute amount of racism. Right, it just doesn't make any sense. You got to say, well, why are people more racist? Did they just wake up one day and go, ah, well, you know what? I hate people who are different from me. Right? What's causing it? Right? And that's when basically the economic comes into it. Because let's do the counterfactual. Are we actually saying that this like huge period of wage stagnation, whereby sixty percent of Americans have the wages of the nineteen seventies and the cost structures of the twenty twenties, doesn't matter? Right. That doesn't matter their lives. The fact that basically benefits have been taken away, that healthcare's went from being a sort of a basic right to being a privilege in work. Uh, the notion that uh, a stable contract and stable working hours is becoming for large parts of the labor market something you can never count on. The stress levels in people's lives, which show itself in kind of the epidemiological correlates of inequality, et cetera. None of that matters. We just decided to be a wee bit more racist. Right. That just that just doesn't do it for I just sorry, no. Now let's take a hard case, right? Labour and Hartlepool in the UK, right, earlier this week. So the Labour Party is traditionally the, the party that, you know, is the, the one that cares about inequality. And the Tories are not. And the Tories are not only making inroads into these northern constituencies, which are the ones that were the most affected by austerity, which are the ones that have been affected by deindustrialization, right? And they're voting for the Conservatives. Now, does that mean, uh, as a very smart political scientist called Matthew Goodwin says, that basically, look, it's culture. Like, they really care about the fact that, like, you know, Brexit is important, a sense of control, a sense of sort of our culture matters, et cetera. And I'm like, yeah, totally. I totally agree that that's exactly what's going on and that's how it's discussed, et cetera. But why is this not happening in richer places, right? Why is it not? Because ha what's happened with the Labour Party is the Labour Party, like the Social Democrats, like the Democrats to a certain extent, it's no longer the party of the poor. This is exactly why that mixture of, if you will, culture and a populist economics is so powerful on the right, right? Because what the left has done is essentially embraced a set of economic ideas and practices, which has created the very inequality that they were historically charged to do something about. And to this day, they still don't know what to do. So if you look at Labour's campaign, right, you know, rather than focusing on there's a huge bug in the software, the systematic generation of inequality, we need to do something about that. It's, well, maybe we should have a few more flags because people seem to care about culture, right? And that just, that just completely arse backwards for where it should be. So to me, the two of them go together. Any experience of economic generators is mediated through cultural and ideological frames. Right. So if you're in the top 10% of the income distribution and you talk about immigration, like everybody at my, my percent of the in income distribution loves immigration. Why? Because an immigrant is probably somebody with a PhD who's going to send their kid to another snotty school like the one I send my kid to. Actually, it's not that snotty, but you know what I mean. Uh, the, I don't consume many public goods that are provided by the state. They don't. They're probably going to be net adding to the, the economy. That's great. All right. So what about the people who live in that public housing that hasn't really been built on since the 19th? 1980s, right? You've replaced stock, but you haven't added to it. Where that's a scarce good. Exactly where do new immigrants move to? What happens to the school there? Are they wrong to basically say, why is it that, you know, half the kids in my school, we're now a bilingual school, we never used to be. What happened there, right? And then they're told to shut up because they're being racist. Well, of course, these are economic changes that are being mediated through cultural frames. So that's, you know, the, the, to me, the two of them go together. I think the attempt to like bifurcate it is really just about sort of academics peeing on their territory to say that sort of, you know, hey, my framework's right. I should get in the top journal rather than actually really trying to understand what's going on. Yeah. And I think there is coming back to your focus on the average as well. I think in, let's say, Hartlepool versus, you know, Scotland, where you do actually have kind of a strong, separate cultural lever where they can drag on Scottish independence, where in Hartlepool they don't have that. These are very different and you can kind of emphasize Well, I mean, they do in the so. sense that you've got English nationalism and you do it, which, you know, is, is, is what's underneath Brexit sure. in a sense. 
Um, and what is English nationalism? What are the kind of the economic correlates of that? Well, it's basically leveling up, right? It's the notion of the national economy. It's the idea that, like, you know, the government needs to protect people after 40 years of basically throwing them under a bus. And you can see how discursively you can work that into that framework, right? That's it. I mean, the problem with the sort of the 1990s and 2000 frame of liberal cosmopolitan internationalism was that it was a kind of, and Eric talks about this in the book a lot, is it was, it's kind of this deracinated, denuded, uh, de-essentialized bleh, right? Where basically everyone is a citizen, to quote Theresa where everyone is a citizen of nowhere, right? And, you know, for people like me that used to, before the pandemic, fly around the world and do stuff and all the rest of it, totally fine, because all of my class is like that, right? Guess what? Let's go back to those people who are earning $25 a day. They're not going anywhere. They live in one place. They deal with one set of cultural frames, right? And then, you know, when people like me who are running the world and talking about the world are going on banging on about sort of, you know, the globalization of this and that and the next thing, this is the only thing that they see is like the place that they used to work got shut down. So how are they meant to interpret that? Yeah, I think, uh, I don't know if you know Asli Kansanar, but she's joining our faculty at the University of Washington um, next year. And she does a lot of work on kind of the perceptions of inequality, particularly from the UK, and shows that it really is, it's, it's not necessarily about, you know, aggregates and these things. It's about how people perceive their local communities. They see yeah. a store shut down down the street. They see, you know, the place where their parents have worked for years. And, and that's really was one of the main drivers of Brexit just this year. Right. And then you switch on the news at night and you've got some, um, you know, politician or academic talking about how it's wonderful that sort of, you know, this, this revolution in AI is going to be so great. And you're just sitting there just going, no, we're the ones that are going to pay for this. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's totally right. Um, so perhaps I, I actually am contractually obligated to bring up COVID in, in 2021 as a podcaster. So I, as you do. I wonder if... if uh, Otherwise you get COVID. That's, that's, that's the that's deal. Exactly you either it. talk about it or you get it. That's, that's, that's exactly how it works. Um, yeah, so... In 2021, obviously, we have the pandemic, and you wrote the book before the, the pandemic, but I think a lot of the lessons and kind of the chapters are probably even more relevant than they were when, when you wrote the book. And so what has the pandemic, maybe we can use the framework of public and private anger, has it kind of emphasized anything to you or highlighted anything that you would say, if you rewrote the book today, this is how you would discuss the pandemic? And perhaps the you know government. No, I mean we have a little pandemic postscript that we managed to get in there just before it was published because it was you know we sent it to the printers in April, so you know we we saw the beginning of it. I mean, if it, what we see in in that postscript is that like the anger's been put away because we're all in lockdown, but that doesn't mean it's gone away. You have to address the fundamental stressors that are there. And, you know, to go back to our conversation about, you know, people refer to the local, that's what matters. You know, they don't care about macroeconomic aggregates of this nonsense you read about in the press, right? So what is it you see in the local? You see more businesses shutting down. You see more families under financial stress. Now, even in the United States, the, the level of support that's been given by governments, the re-emergence of fiscal policy and spending, et cetera, um, has been way more than I would have anticipated. And I think that generally speaking, that's a good thing because the alternative would have been like a massive, massive, horrible depression, right? So, you know, you've always got to remind the counterfactual. It's like, oh, well, we've got all this debt. It says, yes, that's the price of society not collapsing. So, you know, let, let's not knock it, right? Um, so what, you know, what would change? Well, what has to change and what may be beginning to change are things like labor market fragilization, right? Whereby essentially you've got people who have, let's take the example of zero hour contracts, right? You literally don't know what your hours are going to be that week. How does that work if you're a single mom? Right? It's just completely unfair. It's like everything to capital, nothing at all towards labor. And I think that what you're beginning to see coming out of this is in this moment whereby two things have happened. One, we've proven that unprecedented financial support can be given without necessarily blowing up the world. That's all right. Uh, that helicopter money works. There we go, because that's de facto what a lot of countries have done. But also that you know the whole thing, particularly further up the income distribution of work from home, has shown that basically people can get their jobs done without actually putting an ankle bracelet on them and monitoring them from a remote location and basically firing them if they take too long to go for a pee, right? You don't need to do this. And if you see this in the way the sort of the reaction to Amazon workers, 
uh, in warehouses, etc. I think that what the pandemic has done is shift perception as to what sort of we should expect in labor markets. Now, it's up to policymakers to pick this up and, and push it. And a large part of Biden's push, which gets called social infrastructure, really is just bringing the United States up to the level of other developed countries. I mean, we're the only country that has absolutely no paid leave like for you know for child and you wonder why the birth rate is dropping right i mean so it's essentially just sort of like you know raise the bar a little bit so that people aren't so bloody stressed all the time and if you do that then our hypothesis is that if you can take a lot of the if you can take a lot of the, of the stress generators out of the micro side of people's lives then they will be less angry about the macro so in a way, if you think about what Biden's doing, Biden's making a kind of a bet. It's, it's almost as if somebody in the administration kind of not so much read the book, I doubt if they did, but kind of was thinking along the same wavelengths, which is, look, if you think about what Trump was, if you think about something that scared the crap out of the American ruling class, to use that uh, analogy, which was uh, January the 6th. Now, the notion of basically people are, are literally storming the storming the gates, right? And they were like, whoa, hold on. And you've got a president who's basically saying, go, get them, right? I mean, this is serious stuff, right? This is the end of the republic. This is how democracies die, Danny Ziblatt type stuff, right? So what's the lesson you take away from this? We've really screwed up the lives of a lot of people. Go back to 20 bucks an hour for half the population. You don't do the American dream on that. You really need to raise the floor in terms of wages, working conditions, all the rest of it. And you need to run the economy hot so that real wages rise. If you do that, the bet is that the economic basically drives the cultural, that that will change those frames and make people less angry. And then Trumpism, and, and you know, not just reducible to him, but as a phenomenon declines, right? Now, you'll know if the cultural argument really is true, because in a sense, we're running an experiment on this, because if Biden gets to do everything he wants to do and Trump or something like that still gets back in, then basically, yeah, it's time to take the cultural as driving the economic. Right. So that's the experiment we're running. But what they're doing is they're making a bet that the if you change the economic, you change the cultural and the political. That's what this is really all about. It's a high stakes experiment. I'm not sure it's going to get by IRB, but uh, I guess we, we don't really have a choice at this point. <laughs> um, so one of the things you do at the at the end of the book is go into kind of different solutions or not solutions, but potential innovations to the economic mm -hmm. system. Um, and I think, as you say, there is more of an appetite for these types of kind of, I wouldn't say drastic, but at least, you know, innovative new possibilities for overhauling the economic system. And so I think this is the time to pitch some of these crazy ideas. You have people like Andrew Yang who are willing to, you know, say things, some things that are great, some things that are terrible, but at least they're saying them. And I think that's Yeah, no, absolutely. So, it's opening it, up the window. Totally. Uh, yeah. So I think maybe uh, there's a few of them and I would I encourage people to read the book to really dig into them, but perhaps we can highlight a couple of them here. Um, I have written down the data dividends and sovereign wealth funds, uh, but that's the ones, that's the ones okay. that people always pick up on because sure. they're less geeky. Um, so <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about this. So the citizens wealth fund, here's the, and we are not the only people that come up with this. Other people yeah. have come up with this before. We just have a different way of financing it. So here's the deal. Um, last week, Eric and I gave a talk to Thomas Piketty's group at the Paris School of Economics and talked about the now they're big into wealth taxes and our line on wealth taxes is we've got one too it, it's called a citizen's wealth fund it's just not really seen as a tax right and in a way it's also not for reasons i'll explain but thomas's objection to what we were doing is we're trying to spread equity to people so if you think about inequality there's two ways you can deal with it you can tax the people who have and give it to the people who don't right and I don't have a problem with that. I, I just don't think it works that well because when you have extreme inequality, you know, governments talk a good game on this, right? In Europe, all over the place. Oh yes, taxation, whatever. And they just allow their companies to just pay no taxes and rich individuals launder money through the housing market of London and all this sort of stuff. It's all well-documented. And they don't shut down the tax havens or any of this. So, you know, you can pass an 80% wealth tax. Nobody's going to pay it. So if you can't do that model how about you give the bottom the same wealth earning assets as those at the top and that's the citizens wealth fund so how does it work every time there's a major economic pooba or drop in the market 
equities fall by about 50%. At that point in time, what happens is everybody, to use the standard model, is looking at the future discounted cash flow of the company, its profitability, and going, oh, there's a big recession. Pfft, done, right? And given the fact that, particularly for big, deep liquid stock markets of the type that you get in the United States and London and elsewhere, these aren't used for raising capital. These are literally sort of speculative assets, right? Pfft, value falls. What do they buy instead? Now, despite what everybody tells you about the perils of debt, whenever there's a crisis, you can issue debt at a negative real rate because people want the safe asset. And the safe asset is a 10-year government bond because it's likely that that company might not be there in 10 weeks, but that country will be there in 10 years, right? So you buy that. So what happens is, technically, the government's cost of financing is inverse to the, public, to the private sector. So when the private sector puts its pants, the government can finance itself at a negative real rate because everybody wants to buy their bonds because bonds, prices and yields move inversely, right? So what happens is the price goes up, the yield goes down, people buy tons of it, and suddenly the government has all this cash. So rather than doing what we usually do, which is basically go, mm, maybe we should do quantitative easing, and then you buy a bunch of bonds and put more money into the banks and hopefully it trickles down. Why don't we just buy all those shares? Why don't we buy all those equities? And this time we don't give them back. You put them into a professionally managed, massively arm's length, independent fund. I've got a piece that uh, coming out with the, the Federal Reserve of um, St. Louis on this and a project that they've got. And we talk about this and I call it fidelity for the people. Right, so think about fidelity and basically have the public version of this. And you have multiple stakeholders, you don't allow politicians anywhere near it or whatever, right? And there's a thing out there called the equity premium, which nobody really understands, which is equities usually trade over the long run at a premium of about 5 to 6% over the rate for government bonds. So I'm swapping bonds for assets. I'm not changing the net debt position of the government. And if I just sit on this stuff for 10 years and you assume 5 to 6%, if you take 20% of the US economy, I can grow 4 trillion into 6.4 trillion in 10 years. I've just got 2.4 trillion, which is essentially the entire offshore stack of taxes of every American corporation. Right Now, I can go after that stack, and I should, but I can also do this. And if I had four trillion, I could really actually just get rid of all your student debt. And if I got rid of all your student debt, your consumption would go through the roof, which would be massive for growth, right? And I'm not really taxing anybody to do this at all. So why on earth don't we do this? So that's just one of the ideas that we got. So I've done the math, and actually, four point six trillion is still a little bit under what I owe student debt, but uh, it's, it's close. It's a good start. <laughs> it's not bad. Actually, the funny thing about student debt, I got into it with somebody who emailed me. It's like, how can you possibly say that Biden's right to do like the ten thousand dollar rather than full forgiveness? And when you break down the numbers, I mean, if you actually care about basically the bottom end of the income distribution rather than the top, the vast majority, about forty percent of all debt, is about. Nine thousand to thirteen, fourteen thousand dollars, and it's for people who do things like community college, professional training, like you know, being a hairdresser, being a personal trainer, etc. And then there's another sort of buy, kind of a big bifurcated distribution. The other side is like people going to professional school and grad school and stuff like that, and they're massively different people, right? Now, if you then think about lifetimes earnings and the ability to pay back, basically getting rid of forty percent of the debt for the people who owe the stuff that does that isn't anything more than fifteen thousand dollars massively transforms the economy way more than paying off the people at the top. So unfortunately, your debt doesn't get forgiven, but people who are down, down the stream probably does. I understand that that's fair. I, I will protest, but I... But however, no, but I mean, you know, sense. if I get to build a sovereign sure. wealth fund and after 10 years, I can't take care of your debt at the same time, I will. Why would I not? Yeah. No, I mean, it makes total sense. I, totally, I think that I had listened to um, a podcast with Ezra Klein and, and he had Elizabeth Warren on recently and they talked about the exact same thing, trying to figure out where the, uh, the loan redistribution should be or the loan forgiveness right. should be in the, in the fund. It makes a lot of sense. Um, so can, maybe you can talk about data dividends before we, we hop over. I want to finish with one quick thing on your kind of analogy to the European Super League, but can you give us okay. a brief overview of, of the data dividends um, idea? Well, it, I mean, you know, it, it, the world changes rapidly and mm -hmm. Apple's new iOS uh, software uh, rollout, which is basically destroying Facebook, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, trying not to laugh because all it means is Apple get richer. I mean, why is it necessarily better? Well, because they don't weaponize hate, you know, so there's always that one, right? Uh, but essentially, the argument is when you log on to a platform, as the old adage has it, if it's free, you're the product, right? So what is it you're producing? You're producing keystrokes. 
So your data is the fuel for the profit engines of all these digital giants. Why are we giving it away for free? We should be licensing it in the same way that we license mobile phone spectra. And if you think that basically, you know, 5G bandwidth is worth whatever hundreds of billions of dollars, how much is it really worth to all of these companies that are now some of the biggest companies on earth that they get their inputs for free? All we're asking is that we recognize a property right. I am giving you my data that I generate. I'm almost like an involuntary MTurk worker, right? At least on MTurk, you get paid for the keystrokes. Here, we don't get paid for the keystrokes. So why don't we basically get everyone to opt into a national fund? The government negotiates a fee. They pay an access fee for whatever period of time. And then that gets put into the Citizens Wealth Fund to boost it so that we can grow it. Simples. Yeah, I think that policy. So I think the Sovereign Wealth Fund, maybe we can talk about kind of feasibility. I think it is a, an excellent policy. I think it's very difficult to explain to ordinary people. And I, I struggle with it. I think it makes a lot of sense. I had to dig but into here's, it. No, but here's the thing. Yeah. I do this way. Look, do you have a fidelity account? Yes. Why do you have a fidelity account? Because I don't think Social Security will be enough. So what is it you do? You take a portion of your income and then you buy shares in the expectation that the stock market will be higher when you retire than it is now. It's that simple, right? Okay, so why don't we do that when we bail out banks? Why don't we take the stuff that we buy from them when they bail them out and we just keep it and do that? It's really that simple. Yeah, no, I think that's a great sale. And I think you're, you're basically solving the complicated the complication problem, right? The reason quantitative easing kind of exists is because it's the simple version that's less effective. <laughs> and so you're taking it one step further, making it more efficient. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. I do think the data dividend one, people just intuitively understand because they are the ones on Facebook. They are the ones yeah. on yeah, Instagram. And you are an involuntary yeah. MTORC worker at present. You should mm -hmm. at least get paid. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I think there is kind of political support behind that idea, and hopefully for both ideas. But uh, you know, we'll we'll see. Um, as the listeners of this podcast, I'm sure we'll we'll spread the word. So that's uh, I'm sure <laughs> that's a great start. Um, so I had a quote written down here about uh, your take on the kind of the European Super League. I'm not going to read it because I won't do it justice, and it's a little bit long. But the the gist was essentially uh, that this was designed uh, kind of in a in a this in this case in a restaurant that had never taken it out to the streets to see what people thought of the food and then right. they released it and suddenly nobody liked it and they couldn't have seen it coming. It does. It, it astounds me. So for perhaps this is where the, uh, the true academics who don't find sport very interesting, turn off the podcast. But I do think the analogy to kind of the wider disconnect between the elites and ordinary people is, is a great example with the European super league. Um, and for listeners who don't know what that is, is basically an attempt to break away the top and clubs without having to compete for spaces in in the, the Champions League, and so essentially it was creating, trying to turn yeah. soccer into the it tried to turn soccer into the NBA. Yeah, it's it's hard to explain to it. Americans because we only know the the American version. Right. Yeah, imagine, imagine if you had the NBA and yeah. like teams dropped out. Right, yeah. there was actually risk involved. It wasn't a franchise; it was an actual competition. Ooh. But what about the owners? We have to think about the owners. <laughs> we have to think about the owner. You have to think about the owners. <laughs> They won't get their beautiful new stadiums. Yeah, so maybe you can talk us through uh, just what this is an example of. Why do you think that, you know, elites in this case and, and in Europe and in the U.S. in particular, not just in sport, but in other facets of life and in politics in general, why is it that people are so hesitant or reluctant to take kind of common interests into account when they develop new policies or kind of invest in what they think the ordinary people are going to respond to. So, and again, this is one where the sort of the cultural translations are a bit more yeah. difficult, right? So, you know, I, I live in Rhode Island and up the road from Providence, a town called Pawtucket. And for the longest time, they had the, the Pawtucket Red Sox in the A-League. And they were a feeder team for Boston. And uh, the owners said, we'd like a $50 million stadium, please, or whatever it was. And the town, which is really not a rich town, went, no. So then they went to somewhere in Massachusetts, right? So I'm sure the people in Massachusetts are now like, yeah, our team, right? And it's like, well, what exactly is your connection to this? I mean, you know, the, 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 that never happens in soccer in the rest of the world. It's about these things that are deeply embedded in communities. So if you think about a team like, let's say, Bolton Wanderers, right? This was probably set up back in the day by the guy that run this dark satanic mill as a way of, you know, keeping the workers happy. 
And then, you know, you get these professional leagues that sprout up in this. You have these kind of industrialist owners that run these things. And over time, this evolves into the leagues that you have now. But it's deeply rooted in the community. And it's not like Germany where the fans literally own half the shares in the club, right? But there's a sense that this is public property. And what began to happen was a series of sort of, let's say, 70-year-old guys who made all their money in the go-go days of the 1990s and 2000s. Um, who are the pure examples of, you know, if you will, of the neoliberal era, who are like, well, I own it, right? So it's mine, so I can do what I want with it. And the conception that this is like, a, 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 a you may own it, but you don't really because it's really ours, right? Just doesn't compute. So they all get together in hotel suites or on Zoom or whatever and hatch this plan that they're going to break away and do this sort of stuff. And the whole thing is contingent upon the fans like being into it, right? You know, ultimately they have to want to watch Arsenal play Real Madrid twice a week rather than playing Bolton Wanderers. And of course, from the point of view of optimality, efficient allocation of resources, bang for the buck, totally makes sense, right? I'm sure that Liverpool would much rather like, you know, play against Bayern Munich than play against Everton. No, turns out they wouldn't, because people think this is theirs, it's not yours. You're kind of holding it in trust. Your job is to make us successful, but ultimately it's ours. And it was just that wonderful clash between these two very conceptions of ownership and these two very conceptions of what you can do with assets. And what it was was kind of like, I think it's one of those moments that's happening now as we move from that old neoliberal order into something else, whatever it is, whereby the notion of the public having not just access rights, actually being owners in, in these assets, that that's what it was all about. It's like, no, honestly, you might own it, but we own it too. And that was the bit that they just couldn't see. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I do think it's, it's very difficult to kind of explain to Americans because we're used to owners not getting their stadium and then just taking up and shipping to another city uh, here in right but you guys have to think i mean i go into this in the interview a little bit but you guys have to remember how this happened and there's a great book called offside how america doesn't get soccer by andy markovitz from about 2006. um when you had the big wave of immigration in the latter half of the 19th century particularly from places like italy and england and germany etc all these people came with with footballs with soccer balls right there were pro leagues sprouting up in places like St. Louis and Chicago, whatever. And there was a kind of anti-immigrant wave that followed that. And the way that part of the way that that was expressed was essentially these people need to stop playing those foreign sports and play these American sports. And this is when you invent football and you invent baseball in particular. And there's this big drive to do American sports as a sort of like nation building, identity building thing. Now, when you do that, what you're doing is you are literally destroying those organic sort of like local enterprises that are dropping up and you're bringing in franchises. Like that, that's what it is. And you're basically, and, and if you think about it, you know, what is the Boston Red Sox? It's a franchise. What's a franchise? It's a trademark. You can move that trademark of Red Sox anywhere you want. It might be harder for Boston to do it, but it's not harder for the Angels to do it, was it? So, you know, or the Brooklyn uh, Bombers or whatever they were, right? So you, you can move these all over the place. And that's just never happened in 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 europe in terms of sports it's just a very different way of organizing the whole thing which speaks to a very different public culture if you will about again what assets are and what public and private is i think when you uh you invest top down in the creation of a new sport you do end up with something like baseball so that makes a lot of sense and we only have yeah. ourselves to blame for that one uh exactly. yes <laughs> so yeah just one final question and you've kind of answered this throughout i think you talked about this with with biden's plan so maybe you can talk about this more in a a global context or perhaps in a European context. But just the final question is, do you think that populists will continue to prosper? Will there be democratic backsliding over the next decade, two decades? I fear that there will, and particularly in the US. And it's because of the way, frankly, the Republicans are behaving. I mean, we're not really talking about this enough for what it is. You basically have a party that has said, uh, we really think the election was stolen. And they know damn well it wasn't. And it was a tight race, but they lost. And for reasons to do with changing demography, for reasons to do with the fact that they only win the Senate because they gerrymander every district, etc. What you've got is a series of legal reforms to the voting process, which if this was going on in Europe would be right in front of the European Court of Justice immediately and, and would never be allowed to pass. So I'm talking specifically about Georgia, Florida, but you're seeing it everywhere. And a national party, which basically is disciplining one of the most right-wing members of its caucus, right? Uh, because she will not say, accept the lie. 
So you're founding it on a lie, right? Once you do that, it's kind of game over because it is inevitable that they get back in. It is going to happen. And, you know, it's no longer a case of like, can we meet them halfway? They've gone, they've left. They're already playing an anti-democratic game. This is a plutocratic faction, which basically doesn't give a damn about democracy or the truth. And that's astonishingly dangerous for a democratic republic. So I'm, I, I'm deeply worried about it because the way this is trending, I don't see how they come back from this. And what you then end up with is a one-way bet that Biden in two years can spend enough and do enough social engineering that he changes enough of the people in that constituency to basically give up on the sort of deeply held belief that they've now inculcated that not only are their lives crappy in many ways because it's not their fault, it's China, it's whatever it happens to be, it's also because of the fact that there was a lie. Right, And once you let that out, that's poison and that's really dangerous. For the rest of it, I mean, if you think about France, Le Pen's back up in the polls. You've got a country that has had very, very bad experiences with domestic terrorism, right? Whether it's Charlie Hebdo, whether it's the beheading of the teacher, etc. And you've got a large number of French people that feel that there is a, a minority in that country that cannot be made quote-unquote French, as the uh, National Front will, will put it. That's an incredible... And then you've got you know 150,000 people signing on this letter from the Armed Forces warning of a civil war. Right? You know, Again, culture matters, but what is it that's below that? See, that's a tough one for me, because ultimately, that is not really an economic problem. That really is a pure cultural, pro a pure, pure cultural issue there. Um, and it's not clear how you solve this. See, the nice thing about economic problems is if someone's an economic problem at base, if you change the distribution in principle, you can solve it, right? You can make it go away. If something is a pure cultural problem, I don't know how you do that. That tends to end badly. So there's lots of reasons to be very worried about, if you will, not just populism going structural, because I don't necessarily think populism is per se a problem. Um, and here's why. If the if the alternative is a kind of anodyne technocratic centricism where people who go to elite schools get to decide what's good for everyone else, and we call it evidence-based policy, and we basically give up on talking to people, understanding what they're going through, why they think the things that they do, then that needs to go. And populism, in a, in a sense, is the the whistle. This needs to stop, right? So, in and of itself, it, you know, there's information in the populist explosion. Listen to it, learn from it, make the world into a different place because of it. But if you allow it to take its kind of conspiratorial, poisonous, anti-democratic, um, let's say, channel, it's very hard to get rid of that once it starts to run. Well, we've, we've ended the last couple of these on kind of a high note, but I think it's good to bring people back down to earth a bit. So I appreciate you. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, you here. know, when you're, you're talking, you know, as I say in many, in many of these things, you know, you're talking to a Scotsman. You didn't bring me along for shits and giggles. <laughs> well, this has been great. Thanks so much for coming on, Mark. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wittstock. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback and if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.